the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 0.18, The Model Family. All of these odd episodes are designed to help us build our Pope Colored Glasses so we can look at history together. If you're lost, start at the beginning. This is our fifth episode, using the mysteries of the Rosary to walk through the Second Testament, which you may also know as the New Testament, but the world is messy, and I've made a choice to avoid associating Jewish things with being old and outmoded, given how that's played out historically, and frankly how that still plays out today. Give our last episode a listen for more on Catholic-Jewish relations through history. The fifth joyful mystery is the finding of Jesus in the Temple, and it's one of my favorites. Because the more I look at it, and think about it, the more relatable it all becomes. Let's just dive into our only real peek into the life of Jesus from his boyhood. It's probably not the anecdote Mary and Joseph would have picked for preservation, but there it is in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. The male being referred to here is, of course, Jesus. Quote, Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up, as usual, for the festival. When the festival was ended, and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of this. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. End quote. You might already guess why I like this story. I like everything that makes me feel like I'm doing all right as a parent, and anyone who is doubting their parenting capabilities can take some solace in the fact that Mary and Joseph lost track of their only child in what would have been the busiest place in the world. You know, their only child who they believed was destined to save their people. Their only child who was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. If this was a movie, I doubt folks would find it believable that this happened, because you'd think they would have kept real close watch on their literal god-child. There is something of a mitigating factor in that we're told this was among a larger group of travelers, so it's not like Mary and Joseph were walking along unaccompanied and it just didn't occur to them that the 12-year-old Messiah wasn't with them. Now, of course, you know, we know this wasn't Mary's fault because, as we've previously established, Catholicism refuses to give Our Lady any fault. And it wasn't Jesus' fault either, not only because he was a child and so it was his parents' job to look after him, but also because, well, uh, Jesus is God. Every form of Christianity I'm familiar with refuses to assign fault to God. So that leaves poor Saint Joseph. Only human, unlike his son. Not preserved from all stain of sin, unlike his wife. Man, that must have been a tough role. If something goes wrong in the house, you would know who's to blame. We have absolutely no words recorded from St. Joseph, 
so we can only guess how he felt about that. I don't think it's too irreverent to point out that, all joking aside, that's almost certainly not how Joseph saw things. He wasn't a theologian, and even if he had been, it would be centuries before the theologians themselves reached consensus on this. So even if we permit some anachronism, and view St. Joseph as one of the first Catholics, it's not like that would have magically imbued him with the knowledge of theological treatises that would only be written in the future. Sure, Joseph knew from the angel Gabriel, and from folks like Zechariah and Anna, that his adoptive son was something special, but Joseph's role wasn't that of a sitcom character. He was a husband and a father, if both a bit unusually, making his way through life by means of his trade as a tecton in Greek, that is, a skilled laborer, traditionally a woodworker. Uh, presumably he was doing his best, we have nothing to suggest otherwise, and based on that wealth of evidence he has gone down as a saint, with not one but two feast days in the church's calendar. March 19th, the Solemnity of St. Joseph, made universal by Pope Pius V, uh, by the way, moving forward, whenever someone's name ends in an ordinal number, that's the name of a pope, unless otherwise specified. Anyways, Pius V in 1570, and May 1st, the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, a feast which has a needlessly complicated backstory that I'm actually for once not going to get into except to say that its modern form was established by Pius XII in 1955 as a clear competitor to May Day observances hence the title of St. Joseph the Worker, and more on organized labor in connection with Catholicism in a future episode, not least because liberation theology was one of the first topic requests I received years ago. I promise I'll get to it eventually, Isaac. Okay, it's cool and all that I can introduce Joseph's place in the church calendar, and sure, you did come here to know things like Pius IX, and I promise there were other popes by other names, but a lot of biggies in the last few centuries like to be called Pius. Anyways, yes, it's also good to know things like how Pius IX did a lot to kickstart our present century and a half of increased interest in St. Joseph when he made him a patron of the Universal Church in 1870. Terror of demons, protector of the divine infant, Joseph wound up with a surprising number of titles and roles for someone who, for all we know, never spoke. Joseph the Silent being one of those titles. Anyways, let's wind it all back to the man talking with his wife and realizing, oh crap, why are you asking me where Jesus is? I, I thought he was with you. This is a very human man. And yet, when I spoke of fault earlier, is it really right to pin the fault of misplacing the Messiah entirely on Joseph, just because we know Mary and Jesus didn't sin? This is as good an opportunity as any to start talking about Catholic morality. Because what exactly do we mean by words like sin and fault? According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is an official document designed to explain church teaching to the general public, and which I will tend to simply call the Catechism moving forward, anyways, according to the Catechism, morally speaking, there are three components to any moral action. Now, like many church documents, the Catechism is broken down into subsections called paragraphs, which are generally not particularly far from other chunks of text, also known as paragraphs, but which are distinct from them, especially under John Paul II, who really liked to fit several paragraphs into his, well, uh, paragraphs. And it's not just a translation thing. 
The discrepancy is also there in the official Latin. But, as usual, I digress. Paragraph 1750 of the Catechism describes what we're talking about in relatively readable terms, so I'll just quote that and then summarize the contents of paragraph 1751 through 1754. If I were simply lazy, I'd just quote those paragraphs as well. But I try to be both lazy and helpful, and quoting those paragraphs would not be helpful without explaining them. So by explaining without quoting, I'm compromising. You can read the whole section if you want. Catechism is spelled C-A-T-E-C-H-I-S-M, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church is quite findable online. I'll also link the Vatican's online edition in the show notes. While I'm apparently stalling for no reason I can think of, I might as well also note that today, January 1st, 2023, marks the launch of Father Mike Schmidt's Catechism in a Year podcast, the follow-up to his wildly successful Bible in a Year podcast, which I haven't personally listened to, but I'm told it uses a fair amount of humor, so it probably sounds like a better version of this with a more knowledgeable presenter, you know, higher production value and uh, daily content for all of 2023. I will link that in the show notes as long as you promise not to forget about me. I was here first, Father Mike. Anyways, here's the now long-awaited paragraph 1750 of the Catechism. Quote, The morality of human acts depends on the object chosen, the end in view, or the intention, the circumstances of the action. The object the intention, and the circumstances make up the sources, or constitutive elements of the morality of human acts. End quote. Okay, so, what are the object, the intent, and the circumstances, then? What specifically is meant by those terms? Well, let's tackle them, one at a time. First, the object. In a nutshell, the object is what you were doing, and the basic moral quality of that act. Are you robbing someone? Boo. Are you rescuing someone? Hooray! Catholicism isn't shy about assigning moral value to actions. The Ten Commandments, our old friends from episode 8.2, offer a good, basic summary of the things the Church considers bad in their object. That is to say, objectively bad. The Ten Commandments prohibit idolatry, blasphemy, working on the Sabbath, disrespecting your parents, murder, adultery, theft, lying, and jealousy. For those of you counting at home, yes, that was nine things, not ten. And no, I'm not going to explain, except to say Commandments 9 and 10 say basically the same thing. Don't worry, sin lovers. I've got a special surprise for you at the end of this episode, but first we've got to finish this high-level look at what makes something a sin. Because, in the end, anything can be sinful if you do it wrong enough. Of course, not everything is automatically a sin, though it's understandable that Catholicism has something of a reputation for uh, thinking that. Now, there's lots of actions that aren't objectively bad, but rather objectively good, like 
eating a sandwich. But even eating a sandwich, as pristine as that act can be, can still be a sin against any of the Ten Commandments. Or, heck, if you try hard enough and do it on a Sunday, maybe you can figure out how to make it break all Ten Commandments at once. The object of sandwich eating is morally good, but we've got to consider the other two components of any moral act as well, namely the intent and the circumstances. First, let's check back in with Joseph and see how much trouble he's in, given that the lost savior is definitely not Mary's fault. Uh-oh, well, I guess we're off to a bad start. You see, for an act to be morally good, its object needs to be good. And I gotta say, even though I'm not sure exactly which commandment he's breaking with it, I think it's fair to say that parents losing track of their kid is objectively bad. But what about the intent? And the circumstances? Just how big a sin are we talking here for poor Joe? Object definitely wasn't his round, but I think he's faring a lot better when it comes to intent. Normally, intent is the trickiest component of a moral act for any outside observer to judge, because we can't observe intent directly. The best we can do is make an educated guess about whether or not a person is lying when they say what their intent was, if they even say. But in this instance, we actually have the word of God spelling out Joseph's intent, or rather his lack of intent. Going back to Luke chapter 2, verse 43, and I'm going to start saying things like Luke 2:43, and you'll know what I mean, quote, The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of this, end quote. So we can canonically confirm there was no intent on Joseph's part. He was simply unaware that Jesus hadn't come along with the group on their way out. Which leaves us with the circumstances, kind of the potpourri round. As you may have guessed, just like how intent meant intent, circumstances means circumstances. As in, was there anything else going on we should take into consideration? any mitigating factors that would lessen the wrongness of the act, or any aggravating factors that would make it worse. You might make a case for the child Jesus' status as the Messiah, something canonically understood by his parents, as an aggravating factor. But really, I think that while that might make it more embarrassing, and certainly that particular detail is what makes us know about this event, to use it as our unfortunate example, I don't think parents have a special obligation to avoid misplacing their Messiah children that goes beyond what applies to any non-Messiah children they may have. So I think we can discount that aspect. We are told about a traveling group, and I think that's pretty key to understanding what happened here. The text more or less spells it out, too. Joseph assumed that the boy Jesus was simply in another part of the traveling group, and Mary assumed the same. A classic case of, oh, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. Once everyone regrouped after the day's travel, the mistake was revealed, and they went back to look for him. Okay, so when it comes to circumstances, 
By my count, that's one mitigating, the fact that Mary and Joseph were traveling separately among a larger group, and no particular aggravating circumstances, Messiah stuff notwithstanding. So, where does Joseph land on our sinometer? Which is definitely not what it's called, actually, but I said it, and I'm going to roll with it, and it turns out I checked, and you cannot stop me. How much sin is the sinometer showing here for the misplaced Messiah? Well, he's definitely showing up on the scale, because, as we've established, losing track of a child in your care is an objectively bad thing to do. But with no intent behind the act and the mitigating circumstance, I think it's fair to say that Joseph's deed barely even registers on the old sonometer. He's going to end up in the least bothersome category, that of a fault. Yes, it was a bad thing objectively, but honestly, with zero intent, it's hard to even call this morally wrong. And yes, my friends, Catholicism does allow for faults without them being morally wrong, and something that isn't morally wrong isn't even a sin, as we found out in our interview with Patrick on reconciliation. So it turns out that the verdict here is that though it was Joseph's fault, it was no sin. And really, that makes sense, since everything I went over regarding Joseph's moral act here can be applied to Mary as well. And as we know, Mary had no sin. But wait, can't it be no one's fault? Man, what a modern, forgiving, sensitive perspective. Don't be silly. This is Catholicism. You're lucky it's not classified as a sin just for spite. And just for that question, we're going to go back to our spotless virgin approach and put all that blame on Joseph again. Okay, so that really was a bit of an embarrassing showing, all told. A fault, but not a sin? How boring. What more exciting options were out there to choose from? Well, if there had been any intent behind the act, we would have gone beyond the territory of fault but not a sin and right into the sin zone. Naturally, the sinometer can be used to measure different types of sin. The most egregious category, diametrically opposed to relatively innocuous faults, is mortal sin. The Catechism teaches that there are three requirements for a sin to be mortal. First, in terms of the object, it has to be what's called grave matter. Grave is in serious, before you start running off making coffin puns. The notion of grave matter is very, very often misunderstood even by Catholics. Folks tend to do a decent enough job recognizing what is meant by grave matter. For example, murder is grave matter, whereas wearing socks with sandals, while objectively bad, is not grave matter. Where the common error comes in is that assuming that everything that is objectively bad and is a grave matter is automatically a mortal sin. Absolutely not. Like I mentioned, there are three requirements for a sin to be mortal, and we've covered exactly one of them. Two more to go. And if those requirements aren't also met, guess what? We won't be talking about a mortal sin. The other two requirements for a sin to be mortal are full knowledge and complete consent. 
And it may sound like I'm adding on qualifiers because I'm a lefty who wants to make it sound like nothing is a mortal sin, but no, those qualifiers, full knowledge and complete consent, are taken straight out of the Catechism. In fact, let's just quote all of paragraph 1862 here, since it also introduces the third option on our synometer. Quote, One commits venial sin when, in a less serious matter, he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law, or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or without complete consent. End quote. So, for something to be a mortal sin, which is defined as one that severs our relationship with God completely, it has to be a serious matter, and the sin has to be undertaken with full knowledge and complete consent. Frankly, that's a pretty high bar. Even if folks decide to go around classifying basically everything as grave matter, which is actually a surprisingly easy thing to do. More on that later, when we make the Ten Commandments Breaking Sin Sin, which I'm going to keep teasing, so you keep listening. Anyways, like that catechism paragraph just spelled out, all sins that don't meet that high bar are considered venial. That's not to say they should be taken lightly. All sin harms our relationship with God and one another, and even our relationship with ourselves. All sin is bad, and should be taken very seriously. In fact, I agree with the following, quote, It is better that the whole world be destroyed than a single venial sin be committed. End quote. That's a sentiment I came across sometime in college, and though I recall it being attributed to some saint or another, I haven't been able to source it properly, so I may be misremembering the exact phrasing, or I might simply be quoting a random college friend who made something up. If any of you recognize that, and can help me dig up the actual quote that seems to have been telephone-gamed into that form, I'd appreciate it. Either way, it seems to be the logical conclusion of the way the Church considers moral evil to be fundamentally more important than physical evil. Moral evil being sin, physical evil being its effects. The idea that the world does not operate as it should as a result of the fall. And yes, we're going back to op.1 again. Death and disease, for instance, or, in the case of the possibly made-up quote, even the destruction of the whole world are physical evils, while the moral evil of sin takes place on a whole other level entirely. Now, I'm fairly used to that sort of notion. I respect that you might not be if you're used to seeing things purely through physical reality. Which is why we're here together building Pope-colored glasses so we can be on the same page for the main show. Glasses which see the moral evil of sin, even venial sin, as worse than the physical evil of death. Fair? Fair. Though it's worse than physical death, venial sin does not cause spiritual death, the death of the soul, defined as a complete separation of our relationship with God. Mortal sin does, and that's the difference between the two. Some theologians, not Catholics, mind you, so perhaps for the purposes of the show I shouldn't even be calling them theologians, but hey, I'm feeling generous. Anyways, some theologians insist that there are no more or less serious sins, that there's no distinction to be made between 
mortal and venial sins, as well as rejecting other categorizations of sins we don't have time to go into today, though we will go into the sins that cry to heaven for vengeance in a future episode. In any event, ignoring the distinction between mortal and venial sin seems to me a bit like ignoring the distinction between what kills you and what merely wounds you, since, again, that different impact on your relationship with God is what distinguishes mortal and venial. To stretch the analogy further, it might be helpful to think of our third sinometer level, faults that are not actually sins, as things that may inconvenience the soul, but do not actually wound, much less kill the soul. And I really think we should revisit those faults, because for all of my dumping on Joseph earlier, I was simplifying things for the sake of an easy discussion in which losing track of Jesus was all, you know, just on Joseph. But like we already discussed, it's not going off into the deep end to share some of that blame insofar as there is blame with Mary. She was definitely sinless, but not all faults are sins. For example, it's generally accepted that Our Lady probably wouldn't have automatically aced every math test she ever took, because not being perfect at math may be a fault, but it's not a sin. I should note that there are some Catholics who actually are uncomfortable with the idea of assigning even such non-sin faults to Our Lady, given that she was preserved from all stain of original sin from the moment of her conception, and never once proceeded to sin. Generally, that interpretation overlaps with the no-pains-during-childbirth model of the Nativity, since, as you may recall from that discussion, pain in childbirth was magnified as a result of the fall according to Genesis. But to quickly recap that, the key word there is magnified, as in, the pain of childbirth seemed to have existed before the fall in some form, which is an interesting mystery if so, because how is there any form of pain before the fall? Help, help. I need a theologian. I, I don't get it. Anyways, enough about Mary, even though it may be scandalous to hear a Catholic say that. Let's talk about Jesus. Interestingly, while sin is out of the question when it comes to Jesus, at least for Catholics, most Catholic theologians are actually more comfortable attributing faults short of sin to Christ. After all, the Incarnation is fundamental to all Christian theology, and nothing says becoming human quite like taking on those human limitations and even shortcomings. Christ became fully human, and emphasizing even his human faults, short of sin, mind you, tends to emphasize the Incarnation. Of course, outside Catholicism, there are plenty who even go so far as to suggest Christ even sinned, but for those who take Hebrews 4.15 seriously, that's out of bounds. And despite their reputation, Catholics take all of Scripture seriously. Quote, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. End quote. Of course, when it comes to Hebrews, the high priest in question is Jesus, but right now in our narrative, that same Jesus is far from being high priest. He's a 12-year-old boy left behind by his folks. Let's check back in on the Gospel of Luke to get an update on the boy. Quote, 
When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. End quote. Okay, so maybe he wasn't as far from acting like a high priest as his age might suggest. This passage is the only adventure from Jesus' childhood that made it into the canonical Gospels, but the notion of what it was like to have God in the body of a young boy appears to have captured the imagination of a number of early Christians, who filled in the gaps in the canon with various stories of Jesus' boyhood in things like the non-canon Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and the also non-canon Infancy Gospel of Matthew. You hear me, guys? Non-canon. Their themes are similar to what we see here, a child Jesus impressing those around him by showing his God side. Of course, in some ways, he also still acts a bit uh, underdeveloped. Another quote. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. End quote. For folks very used to the idea of the Incarnation, with Jesus as the literal Son of God, it's a bit weird the way that ends, with Joseph and Mary apparently not understanding what Jesus meant by calling the temple his father's house. I mean, they did know that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? And even that he would be called the Son of the Most High, right? Perhaps that wasn't the part that they had trouble wrapping their heads around. Perhaps, instead, it was Jesus saying he must be in his father's house. Perhaps they didn't understand why he was apparently not especially inclined to be in, you know, their house. I mean, they're his parents. This is a 12-year-old boy. Presumably one who has generally been a good boy since, you know, the whole no-sin thing. Not that children misbehaving tends to rise to the level of sin, but it's hard not to picture Jesus as a generally well-behaved child, not the sort to intentionally separate himself from his parents and hang out with the elders for three days, then have the gall to chastise them for being shocked at his apparently rebellious behavior. And sure, at least in the case of St. Joseph, we can perhaps cheekily chalk some of this up to classic foster father, you're not my real dad childish behavior, but when it comes to Mama Mary, Jesus lacks even that excuse. And keep in mind, one of the Ten Commandments we ran through earlier, and which we will be revisiting in sandwich mode soon, one of those Ten Commandments was the obligation to honor your father and mother. So not doing that would be a sin. Honestly, I don't think Mary and Joseph's confusion comes from them not understanding the God is my real dad angle Jesus was apparently going for when he was talking about his father's house. No, it's more a question of how dare he? Literally, how? In the end, I don't think I'm alone in seeing this passage as evidence that Jesus, for all his godhood, was still working with the brain of a preteen boy. The passage continues, perhaps tellingly, 
Quote, then he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was obedient to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and in years, and in divine and human favor. End quote. So, in the end, allowing for Jesus' twelve-year-old brain, the young Christ managed to avoid breaking the fourth commandment by neglecting to honor his parents. That last verse, with Jesus increasing in wisdom in years and in divine and human favor, is often cited along the incarnation warts and all lines we were discussing earlier. No sin, mind you, but yes, faults. Human faults. Like being a snotty little brat of a twelve-year-old. And this is the last we see of the child Jesus. We stretched these twelve verses about as much as we could this episode. Really, it's just a single vignette that we get from a twenty-eight or so year stretch between the Magi and, well, what goes on in the next episode. Remember how, last episode, I went all in on talking about everything related to trees to give things something of a common theme? Well, let's go ahead and take a similar approach and talk about the Catholic perspective on families, gender, and sexuality to fill in for what we don't know about the Holy Family. Before we do, please note that if you don't want to deal with traditional Catholic teachings on marriage, gender, and sexuality right now, you don't have to. You have my permission to stop here. I do think it's important for future context, which is why I'm going into it now, but if you've had enough gay bashing for one lifetime, you won't be too far off if you simply sub in that experience as a placeholder. I love you all, but Pope colored glasses are not lenses that are LGBT plus affirming. Similarly, Divorced folks, regardless of the reason for it, may be in for a rough stretch. Also, the remainder of this episode is going to be PG-13. Anyways, marriage, as you probably know, is the root foundation of family life from the Catholic perspective. Obviously, marriage isn't exclusively a Christian thing, but by ancient tradition, marriages between two Christians one male and one female, have been considered sacramental. Indeed, when we combine the sacramental nature of Christian marriage and the permanent nature of the sacraments within Catholicism, that's kind of the root of the Catholic Church's rejection of divorce. After all, isn't Jesus speaking of marriage in Mark 10:9 when he says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But first, you're right, I haven't really covered the permanent nature of sacraments within Catholicism yet. I will next episode. And second, you're right, Jesus does say, except for sexual immorality, when condemning divorce in Matthew 5.32. So it seems Jesus has a loophole allowing for divorce, even though the Catholic Church technically doesn't. I say technically doesn't because annulments exist. And, though it's not technically a correct description, quite often folks tend to think of an annulment as a Catholic version of divorce. Which, I mean, fair enough. If you're granted an annulment, it looks pretty much the same as a divorce from an outside perspective. But the Church is very much willing to sweat the difference here, because an annulment is a recognition, in the eyes of the Church, that a marriage never actually took place. 
Not that a marriage has ended, because marriage is a sacrament, and sacraments are permanent. And again, more on that next episode. Here's the Catechism's paragraph on divorce. Paragraph 2384. Quote, Divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. It claims to break the contract, to which the spouses freely consented, to live with each other till death. Divorce does injury to the covenant of salvation, of which sacramental marriage is the sign. Contracting a new union, even if it is recognized by the civil law, adds to the gravity of the rupture. The remarried spouse is then in a situation of public and permanent adultery. If a husband, separated from his wife, approaches another woman, he is an adulterer because he makes that woman commit adultery, and the woman who lives with him is an adulteress because she has drawn another's husband to herself. End quote. One detail here that has Catholicism a bit less hardline than some other perspectives on marriage is that though marriage is for life, it ends when life ends. Widows and widowers are free to remarry after the death of their spouses. Now, I know you heard my disclaimer a couple minutes ago as we started this section, and you probably also clocked my one male and one female qualification earlier. Please note that yes, in the traditional Catholic perspective, there is no room for gay marriage. There is also no room for genders other than male and female. There is also no room for sex outside of marriage. Heck, even sex within marriage is restricted. How restricted? Well, the sexual act, as it's euphemistically called, is geared towards conceiving children. Catholic couples are supposed to be, quote, open to life, end quote, when they are physically intimate. In practical terms, any sex should end with penis in vagina, something that is discussed often enough in certain forums that it even has its own abbreviation, P-I-V. Also, and somewhat famously, the Catholic Church opposes the use of artificial contraception for the purpose of preventing pregnancy, though medicine that has a contraceptive effect can be considered permissible if that is a side effect and not the main goal of the medication. Even simple monitoring and tracking of fertility cycles should only be done to avoid pregnancy when there is a serious cause for doing so. All of these things are most succinctly spelled out in an encyclical written by Pope Paul VI called Humanae Vitae, which came out in 1968. In the lead-up to that encyclical, there were widespread reports that Pope Paul would be changing Catholic teaching to allow for use of artificial conception, but that is pretty emphatically not what happened. A not insignificant number of folks have basically expected that teaching to change at any moment ever since, but that has not come to fruition, and frankly, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. In the end, if you designed a program meant to bring about the largest number of baptisms by means of bringing about the largest number of live births, it wouldn't be so very different from Catholicism, with the exception of the whole monogamy thing. But I digress. Hey, uh, 
Remember that whole sandwich thing? I've been promising you a commandment-breaking sandwich, and it's time, finally, that I paid up. A quick note before I do. Just like before when I went into detail on Catholic teaching on marriage, gender, and sexuality, and reminded you that you don't actually have to listen if you don't want to, well, you can skip this part if you don't want to hear about sinning in ten different ways through a single sandwich journey. Alright, for those still listening, first off, you gotta really love your sandwich. Like, worship your sandwich. Put it ahead of God. Maybe it's a BLT if that helps you visualize. Oh, actually, make the bacon be from meat that's been sacrificed to idols to really seal the deal. Second, your sandwich needs some blasphemy. Spell out the tetragrammaton in your preferred condiment on the top bun, confident that doing so will grant you magical powers. Yeah, like, like that. Third, make a point of prepping this sandwich on a Sunday. Skip Mass to put it together right. Fourth, refuse to share this sandwich with your folks, no matter how good it is. Especially because of how good it is, in fact. Fifth, murder your neighbor for that one ingredient that really ties the sandwich together. It doesn't even have to be edible. Maybe it's one of those little plastic swords you put in the middle. You know, a dark blue one. The best color right in the middle. A sixth, while reaching for that little plastic sword, accidentally brush up against your neighbor's spouse. Have sex with them. Seventh, now do it. Steal that dark blue beauty. The sword, not the spouse. This isn't Avatar. Eighth, if anyone asks you about all this, lie and say you know nothing about it. Actually, lie unprompted because it would be a shame if you had to wait for someone to ask about all this, for you to check all the necessary boxes. Ninth, get real jealous about any other spouses your neighbor has around. Tenth, and any other sandwich swords as well. Alright, there we go. Your decouple decker all ten commandments breaking sin sandwich. I'm gonna go take a shower, but before I do, I want to give some past due love to our logo designer Russ our Sonic Consultants, Tony and Billy, Isaac, our own personal Jesus, and my family for putting up with me as I work on this. Especially thank you again to Dad for helping with the studio build, and Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History as always for her constant support, not to mention all of our family members for the extra meals they've been giving us lately. Our next episode will be coming out, frankly, pretty soon, I hope. I am still aiming for January 6th Epiphany, since that's the next solemnity, but frankly, things are getting extra crazy around here as we ramp up to baby time, and so I might push the next episode out into the scheduled break period. We'll figure it out. I do have a little bit of commentary I want to give on uh, the passing of Pope Benedict, but I don't have time to make that tonight. So anyways, I go ahead and mark your calendars and get ready for episode 0.19. Signs. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. <laughs>